So we're shifting slightly this morning. Um, We've spent the last few weeks um, considering what it means to be at ease in God's world, what it means to be a people who are reconciled to God and who are given the call of the ministry of reconciliation. So we've been laying the scriptural and theological foundation for that. And we're shifting now to considering what it means to actually practice the ministry of reconciliation. And so we are looking to the one who is the best model for us on that, uh, Jesus Christ. And so we are in John's Gospel, looking at a particular story here where I think the ministry of reconciliation is modeled. So we are in John 8. And we are going to begin reading, mm, this is one of those odd things where the verse numbers don't exactly match up with the thought train. So we're actually going to begin reading in the second half of verse 1. So listen for the word of God. So Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They said this to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O God, our rock and redeemer. Amen. I tell you, it has been a wonderful time to be preaching on the Ministry of Reconciliation and to have the Pope visit the United States. I wish I could tell you I planned it that way, but I didn't. It has been really something to see Pope Francis and to watch his interactions with all different kinds of people, and also to read about his interactions, something that has really, really struck me um, is in several different venues, he has asked people to pray for him. Have y'all noticed that? Have y'all read about it? 
when he was visiting with school children in New York. And as he drew the visit to a close, he said, I have some homework for you. Please pray for me. It's quite remarkable to consider this person who has held in the, let me put let me back up and say this way this position that has had so much power and so much authority accrued to it over the centuries and to see how this particular man lives that out and when he was preaching at Madison Square Garden on Friday afternoon, he did this homily about finding God in the city. And I would like to share this quote from that homily with you. He says, In big cities beneath the roar of traffic, beneath the rapid pace of change, so many faces pass by unnoticed because they have no right to be there. No right to be part of the city. They are the foreigners, the children who go without schooling, those deprived of medical insurance, the homeless, the forgotten elderly. These people stand at the edges of our great avenues in our streets in deafening anonymity. Deafening anonymity. I think the woman in this story is one who dwells in deafening anonymity. As I consider this text, and I bring to it the words that I've heard from Pope Francis, it seems to me that we have a similar setting here in John's Gospel. We have Jesus in Jerusalem teaching at the temple. It is a festival time. And so the city is teeming with people more so than usual because of all of those that have made pilgrimage for this particular festival. And Jesus is teaching in the temple and people are just blown away by what they hear. But those who are in the inner power circle around the temple are not too thrilled about what's going on. And the text names the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, before we begin to unpack that a little bit, I just want to say that the legacy of the Gospels has made us think not too well of the scribes and the Pharisees. They are often portrayed as the bad guys. And so what I would like for us to remember is that as the Gospels were being written, that those who followed what would become rabbinic Judaism and those who became Christians were in the midst of a great divorce. And so they're hurling all kinds of insults at each other. And so when we see this language about the scribes and the Pharisees, that's evidence of the tension that was between those two communities, which would eventually be separate. And so we have the scribes and the Pharisees here who 
are wanting to catch Jesus in a mistake in the law. And they haul this woman up in front of him as he is teaching in the temple. Now, this story is familiar to many of us that have been raised in the church, and it is always called what? The woman caught in adultery, right? And so we tend to turn our attention to this woman and what she has done wrong, and we can slip off into moralistic thinking pretty easily. But what I would like to do is take a look at the scribes and the Pharisees here. What they have done is they've gone and they've found this woman and they haul her up in front of Jesus and she is a pawn for their schemes. What they want to do is use her so that they can try to catch Jesus in some kind of mistake in the law. And they are actually... Pretty disingenuous when they do that, because if you go back and you read Leviticus and Deuteronomy, when it talks about adultery, it's the man who is mentioned first. When a man commits adultery, he and the woman with whom he commits adultery shall both be stoned. (laughs) So, they actually have no interest in wanting to portray things correctly. All they want to do is catch Jesus in a mistake so they can bring a charge against him. And they don't think twice about using somebody, perhaps against her will, so that they can prove their point. And so Jesus bends down and he writes on the ground... There have been commentators over the centuries that have tried to figure out what it is Jesus wrote on the ground. But the thing is, I don't think it's what he wrote on the ground that is an issue. When he stoops down, in essence, he dismisses the scribes and the Pharisees. He deflates the situation. And so they, they present their case. And so he bends down and he writes on the ground and he stands and he says, Let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. And what he has done is he has taken it out of the realm of arguing about the law. He has taken it out of the realm of keeping people as second-class citizens and has flattened the the playing field, in essence, because every one of us is marked by sin. And it's really interesting to note that the first ones who leave the scene are the elders, (laughs) the ones who are considered considered wise and who are leaders, and they leave the scene first. And then the others gradually began to leave because Jesus has stooped down on the ground again and begins writing on the ground, again diffusing the situation. 
And everyone then is gone, and Jesus stands up again, and he addresses the woman. I can only imagine what must have been going through her mind. Perhaps fear that this one who was standing before her could actually stone her. St. Augustine, in his commentary on this particular text, says, In this moment, in this moment, after everyone else has left, we have misery standing before mercy. The misery of an existence on the periphery of society. The misery of all of those categories of people that Pope Francis has been speaking about over the last few days. The misery of those who are labeled less than. Standing before mercy. Before the one who can dissolve those categories and those labels. The one who offers her a life that is free of all of that stuff. The one who offers mercy is also the one who offered a different way of living and viewing the world to the scribes and the Pharisees. They too are offered an opportunity to quit thinking in those legalistic splitting hairs categories that keep people ranked hierarchically. But they leave the scene. I don't know if the woman truly realized who she was in connection with then. But I like to think that when Jesus said, Go and sin no more, that she felt those shackles of being a second-class citizen fall from her and that she was able to live a liberated life because she had received the reconciling mercy and grace of Christ, just as we all have. In essence, it's like Jesus is presenting us with the choice that we talked about a couple weeks ago, going all the way back to the garden. The tree of life, which fosters life at its best, which is beautiful and which provides food. And then the tree of the knowledge of good and evil which humanity cannot handle taking a bite of its fruit. Because it throws us back into all of those old ways of being, does it not? And so Jesus lays before the woman and lays before us this choice. Nobody's going to cast a stone at you, so go forth. Sin no more. Do not live your life defined by these toxic ways of being. Go forth and live a reconciled life. And that is the choice that Jesus puts before us now. What is our choice? 
to live according to the old ways in which animosity defines our days more than we like to admit. Animosity and anger and labeling and splitting people into groups or in the way of life, the way of forgiven life, the way of reconciled life in which all the barriers are broken down and we exist as the one people God has created us to be. What is our choice? Amen.